Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville, 106.5 FM. You may be listening to us online anywhere in the world. Heck, you could be tuning in from Norfolk in the UK at forwardradio.org. The reason I say that is because we have a unusual wonderful international program today um i occasionally from time usually i talk to locals on this program but occasionally from time to time i get some national or international authors and i'm really excited to have joining me in the virtual studio dr wayne visser welcome wayne Thanks for having me. Great to connect across the miles. Exactly, exactly. Wayne is a storyteller, a professional speaker, calls himself an idea monger. We could go into what that means. A meme weaver uh, and a pracademic. Uh, I love, we, we should talk about that term too. The, the reason I'm having Wayne on today is he's the author of a brand new book out this year from Fast Company Press called Thriving, the Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the economy. I just read this book, my friends, and uh, I you've got to you've got to check it out. It is so hopeful and wonderful, uh, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. is all about thriving. Uh, but if you want to play along at home, you can learn more about Wayne and what he does and his book at WayneVisser.com. W a y n e v i s s e r dot com. Uh, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, having having just finished your book, I think you might like me to rename my show "Thriving Now." Uh, so let's start off uh, with why do you think thriving is the new sustainability? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on the show. And look, I've been working in sustainability for more than 30 years now. I got involved before the original Rio Earth Summit of 92. I was part of a group of international students that gave their young voices as input to that original conference. Uh, and so this has been my life and my career for, for many decades. And you know, I think that after 30 plus years, I see that there are some problems with sustainability. Mm -hmm. For one thing, it's not clear. It's still not well understood. And you would think after three, 30 plus years that we would have some consensus. But you ask 100 different people what sustainability is, and some will think it's really an environmental thing. Others will think it's really just about continuing economic growth. Mm. Um, you know, and now we have 17 sustainable development goals. Does that right. make it clearer or actually, uh, you know, make it more, more <laughs> tricky? So I think we've got an issue with, with the term and how clear it is, what it means. Uh, and there are all kinds of competing terms now as well. Thriving is 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 a kind of a reframing, but we've got ESG, of course. We've some people are still clinging to CSR. So you know, it's an alphabet soup of uh, competing concepts. But that's <laughs> that's probably not the 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 real reason for questioning sustainability. It's fine that there are different perspectives, but I think that it isn't working. And that's the more fundamental issue. I think that if you look at many of the trends, we're headed in the wrong direction, some rather rapidly and urgently, whether that's climate change or income inequality 
or biodiversity loss. Um, we really are not getting to grips with these at all. And, you know, part of that is because, you know, I think that uh, there's that saying, if you aim for the stars, you might hit the moon. I, I think we've been aiming for the moon and barely getting off the ground. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just, we're not aiming uh, for a genuinely positive uh, outcome. And so the last thing is that sustainability is boring. You know, it's, uh, it's simply, it's simply not inspiring. I mean, if you just think of the word, what does it mean to sustain something? It right, means to right. continue to endure. And do you wake up in the morning, if you have a partner and turn to your partner and say, I'd like to sustain our relationship. No, you say, I'd like us to thrive. I'd like our family to thrive. I'd like our community to thrive, you know, or our organization or our school or our city. And, and people know what that means. They know what it means to thrive. Qualitatively, there's a difference there. And I think that's a lot of what it's about. It's having one, a different mindset to these problems that we face but also a different level of ambition, which I think is really important. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I love that. Um, one of the wonderful things about your book, Thriving, is that you sprinkle through it some poetry. So I think we should begin with the poem you start the book with called Thriving, just to sort of drive home this point you were just making about why we need to focus on thriving. Sure, I'd love to do that. And uh, it's something I spring on audiences quite often now. And you can imagine a lot of these are executive audiences. <laughs> and so it, first it comes as a shock, but then it, it accesses a different part of the brain. And then that's why I, I include it. Um, so it's quite a long one, but I'm quite happy to do it. Uh, it's called Thriving. Our life is so much more than a duty or a chore of merely getting by without a why or what for. The law of tooth and claw, the struggle to exist, to rally and resist against life's slow decay, the way of entropy, of living just to see another day, to stay, to endure and survive. No, life is meant to thrive. In nature, all things grow from seed to tree. We know the cycle of living through giving, of reap and sow the flow. Things come and go, the cycles of grooming, from sprouting to blooming, of stretching for the light, the bright palette of hope, the diverse ways to cope, to cherish and flourish, bursting forth and alive, for nature means to thrive. Society lives too, a melting pot we brew from cultures and crises with spices for flavor and kindness to savor, ideas for conceiving and goals for achieving that stretch us and bind us, that find us together in all kinds of weather, wanting what's fair, to care, longing to love and strive for society to thrive. The markets live and breathe in complex webs we weave. The synapses of trade have made the things we need, each deed a chance to lead. While tech is getting smart yet, still it needs a heart, a compass as a guide to tide us through the storm and find a better norm, a breakthrough to renew an innovation drive. Yes, markets too can thrive. All life is meant to rise, to reach up to the skies, to move beyond the edge, to fledge with hopeful cries, 
Life tries until it flies. It shakes and spreads its wings and trills each note it sings. While given time and space, the race of life is run, full powered by the sun, on land, in seas, like bees, sweet nectar from the hive. All life is made to thrive. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. I know that was a long one, but thank you for sharing that because I really think poetry speaks to us like nothing else. And that sort of crystallizes so much of the book, which, of course, as you can tell, my friends, it's unapologetically hopeful, right? (laughs) In fact, you dedicate the book to all who inspire hope through action, who refuse to give up on people on the planet and who are helping regenerate nature, society and the economy. So, How did you gain this perspective, Wayne? And does it spring from your near-death experience in South Africa? (laughs) It's a good place to start, (laughs) I suppose. Although I have to say, uh, you know, hope is absolutely central. And uh, as, as you've indicated, I have some connection to South Africa. Perhaps some friends listening uh, will recognize the accent. Uh, So I was born in Zimbabwe in Africa and I grew up and lived many years in South Africa. And so one of the reasons for hope is actually that I lived through the transition in South Africa from a racist apartheid regime Mm -hmm. to democracy. And I saw how something which seemed so disastrous and which clung on for 40 years, you know, uh, there was resistance all around the world within South Africa, protests, and yet that clinging to power of the old regime. Uh, And yet when the change happened, it happened incredibly fast. And so I've seen complex systems change and I've understood and studied a lot uh, how these changes happen. And and that's one of the reasons for hope. Um, But indeed, uh, back in South Africa on holiday a few years ago, my wife and I went to a wonderful beach called Sodwana Bay and uh, you know, perhaps you don't expect it so much uh, in America, but uh, I, we came across a sign on the beach, which is not uncommon. And the sign was a danger sign, and it had a little picture which had uh, a shark, a hippopotamus, <laughs> and a crocodile. So wow. now, now, normally that would scare people away, but in <laughs> Africa, that's kind of normal. Part for the course. Just means be, be aware, but don't be afraid. Um, and so we went swimming at this beach and um, we got caught in a riptide because the sign that we didn't see, another danger sign on the beach, was warning of strong currents. And so we got dragged out to, to sea. Wow. And, uh, yeah, there were certainly moments when we both thought we would drown. Fortunately, we didn't. And it got me reflecting a lot on, you know, of course, the value of life, mm. um, but also you know, that some of the dangers that we see that are the more obvious dangers that seem to be the crises right in our face probably aren't the ones that are going to kill us, right? It's those slow, hidden ones that are drawing us in a certain direction, uh, perhaps over the cliff, you know, that we really have to pay attention to those. But of course, coming through that, you, you really think about how can you make the most of life? And certainly my, my feeling the next morning was not, how can I sustain my life? Mm. It was, how can the rest of my life be all about thriving? Mm. And how does one spring back from an experience like that with hope? And 
Um, you know, my mentor at Oberlin College, David Orr, has always said that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, right? And th that is really, I think, a message embedded in your book. You want to talk about what you mean when you say hope? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is an action verb. I think hope <laughs> that isn't, isn't rooted in action really doesn't work. Then it's just fantasy. And, and we're certainly not talking about that. This, this book is not an exercise in blind optimism. Mm. Uh, in fact, I talk at the beginning about the Stockdale par paradox. So Admiral Stockdale, naval officer from the US who, who lived through um, seven years in a prisoner of war camp during Vietnam, and came through that and said the only reason that he and others could survive was this paradox. They had to face the brutal facts of where they right. were and what they were confronting, and yet never give up faith that things could turn out differently, that they could change. And actually he said those that failed to survive were often those who had the blind optimism where they thought, well, this will be over by Easter, this will be over by Christmas. So we can't become fantasists. We have to face the real challenges, but never give up the hope. And I mean, there's a wonderful book called Hope in the Dark, which also expresses this so beautifully, Rebecca Solnit. And she's really writing about movements, what, what uh, makes social movements for justice effective. And she, she studies a lot also the movements in the States, civil rights movement and others. She's at a time where this sort of protest going on around uh, George Bush and some of the policies that were happening then and the, the war, Iraq war. But she writes beautifully and poetically. And, and I, if I can just share one quote, because I think this oh, yeah. tells us, you know, she says it so, so eloquently. And I think it cures us of this idea of a sort of, um, you know, fantasy optimism. She says, Hope is not a lottery ticket you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. <laughs> Hope should shove you out the door because it will take everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, from the annihilation of the earth's treasures and the grinding down of the poor and the marginal. To hope is to give yourself to the future. Mm. And that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable. And I think that's the sense in which I embrace hope. Mm, I love that. So in a way, hope is focusing us forward in the future, whereas perhaps the problem with sustainability is it's a little bit looking back, uh, trying to sustain things as they were. I don't know. Yes. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know, sustainability is just... Um, in the quagmire of doom and gloom, right? Mm. I mean, we, we study the science and the facts and many of the trends are not, uh, not very cheerful. Uh, and so we get caught up in that and you can't afford to because what that misses is the constant possibility for change. What it misses is all of the innovation that's going on. And there are hundreds of examples I give in the book and what it misses is this nature of change. You know, change is never a straight line. And what you get is resistance, 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 and then a tipping point, and then things change very quickly. Um, I, I talk a little in, in the book about this idea of tipping points or, you know, 
movements, it's no coincidence that that's in the, the subtitle, the movement to regenerate. So if you think of birds flocking in the sky, you know, they're moving together. There's a wonderful English word called murmuration. You see it often with starlings, right? Uh, and they've applied that to human beings. They've said uh, in some experiments, what if you have a random crowd of people moving? If you were to tell a few of them beforehand to try to move the crowd in a certain direction, but they still have to stay connected to the crowd, how many would it take to move the crowd if the rest were random? And it turns out it's only between 5 and 25% of the crowd that needs to move with a common intention, wow. a common direction, a common purpose. And so, you know, this is the phenomenon of tipping points. We don't need that majority that we often think politically we need. What we need is a movement that starts to sway the crowd. I'm speaking today with Dr. Wayne Visser. He is author of the brand new book out this year, Thriving, the Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the Economy. He's also a head tutor, fellow, and lecturer at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and professor of integrated value at Antwerp Management School, where he holds the world's first academic chair in sustainable transformation or thriving transformation. Maybe that's what we should be called, right? <laughs> so, okay, we've talked about this really important verb with its action verb of, of hope, but your book also introduced me to a, a very important noun that I'd never heard of before. Can you tell us what you mean by a possibilitist? Ah, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's so tricky on the tongue that, I know. that uh, it, you know we trip ourselves up. But I can't claim to uh, have coined that one. Um, so a possibilist uh, is is a term that Hans Rosling, uh, a Swedish statistician working mainly in in the health sector, introduced to us. And uh, if you've never seen any of his his talks, he's fantastic. He just sort of animates data. Sadly, no longer with us, but uh, he has a wonderful book called Factfulness that mm. really shows how most of how we perceive the world is completely out of date. Yeah. So he has these wonderful experiments where, I mean, I do the tests regularly with my students and, and uh, corporate uh, participants and so on. And, and basically everybody scores worse than a chimpanzee would score <laughs> on, on all of these questions. And it's because we have these biases in our in our answers and we are probably thinking of a world that is about 10 years out of date. But anyway, he introduced this concept of a possibilist because somebody once asked him if he's an optimist or a pessimist. And he said, oh, no, you know, in a very Swedish way, those are emotional states. And so he's neither, <laughs> uh, you know, heaven forbid that you would be emotional <laughs> right, about right, right. Uh, <laughs> as a statistician. But he did say he's a possibilist, meaning that he believes that change is always possible, and mm. and I think that is true, and hmm. it's very closely linked, linked to hope. And so, even in the worst circumstances, you know, change is possible. It's possible also to shape our own attitude. Mm. So I'm a great fan of Viktor Frankl, um, who survived four Nazi concentration camps, Austrian psychiatrist, wow. who wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, which is sort of existential psychology. And what he said was that in any circumstance, you never have to lose control over your attitude, even if you're being tortured. 
And so I think that's also important, no matter how bad things get, we can, we can see that something better is possible. Wow. So Wayne, you and I seem to have come of age at the same time, this, this pivotal moment, just after the 1987 UN report called Our Common Future, in which the term sustainable development was coined. You know, this, this is a common definition that most of us are familiar with, development that meets the needs of the president without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. For me, around that time, what was the, the pivotal moment for me was a, was a cross-country bicycle trip from my front door in 1989 when I was 15 years old uh, that when I returned from and all my friends were taking driver's ed and getting driver's licenses, this was my moment to rebel against car culture and say, I'm, I'm not going to participate in that. And I think it's a waste of money. And why should I pollute the air to get where I need to go? I just rode my bike all the way across the country. So I've been riding my bicycle ever since. I've never had a driver's license. And it's been absolutely revolutionary for me in the way I see the world and interact with the world and my health and wealth and everything else, right? For your moment that you describe in the book was a college trip to Tokyo in advance of the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. I wonder if you could share that story with our listeners. Yeah, it was uh, a pivotal moment, firstly for a young South African uh, mm. who had led a fairly sheltered life to be traveling to Japan in, in 1990. I mean, that was very exotic yeah. and very exciting. And so a lot of that was about uh, realizing how diverse the world is, um, how we have these very big problems uh, that seemed at the time existential. And yet we also, uh, at least our spirit in that conference was that these are solvable uh, these are things that if we put our minds together and our, our actions behind that, uh, we can really improve the world uh, for the future generations, which mm. is the essence of it. And, um, you know, we were quite encouraged afterwards when the Rio Earth Summit was the largest gathering of political leaders uh, then and since yeah. that has ever taken place. And there seemed to be an action agenda, Agenda 21, and, you know, I was hooked from then. Um, you know, you can't unsee a world that's been revealed to you. And, oh, yeah. and the world that was revealed, of course, was a world where we, we face um, potential social and environmental breakdown. Um, so once you're tuned into that, you can't really tune out. And so I molded my career around that ever since. Uh, what's been interesting uh, when I look back is to say, well, what has changed? And we live in a very, very different world today, um, you know, 30-plus uh, years later. And we have more than ever before people who are active, uh, organizations fighting for sustainability, companies, you know, making it their mission so lots lots that's going on and many of the problems still getting worse and that's the, there's been the struggle for for 30 years is you know how much is enough what how deep do the changes have to go indeed and and in the end we must conclude that it's a transformative change we need we can't tweak the system that we've got 
you know, even if you just take climate change, you don't get to a, you know, a net zero uh, economy by 2050 by getting a bit of energy efficiency. I mean, this is a, a next industrial revolution and, yeah. and it's happening uh, and it will happen actually a lot quicker than people think. So, you know, it's just that, that realization that we need the ambition and we need the acceleration of solutions, many of which are there already. And if you're in the midst of that, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I'd love to turn to a really important concept in the book, which is about uh, regeneration. And when I'm talking to people at the University of Louisville about, you know, often from a perspective of like, what can I do in my personal life to be more sustainable? Since I'm a gardener <laughs> and I love to grow food, I often try and share the concept about we need to not just be consumers, but producers. And I think that's tied into this whole concept of regeneration. And you make the point that all living systems are regenerative. And, and I think, you know, most of us kind of get that for for ecosystems and nature. But how is this so for the other three realms in the sustainability or thriving world. How is this true that societies and economies are regenerative? Well, it's, it is a natural instinct that we have is to, is to do whatever we can to continue to renew ourselves. Uh, so we do that, of course, individually, but we do it in families. We do it in communities. We are always looking to, you know, make sure that what we leave behind is is better than what we mm. came with mm. and that that we pass on something, whether that's to our children or to, you know, whoever will live in the city after us. And I, I just think it's built in, you know, we do have, we are part of nature after all. So we have this built-in drive to regenerate. Now, one of the dilemmas we face is I think that's manifested, especially in the economy, as an idea that we have to constantly grow. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. not the same as regeneration. So there is no such thing as constant physical growth in nature. The only place that occurs is cancer. And mm. we know that's not such a good thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, and yet that's how we are growing our economies and sometimes how we, we attempt to grow our societies. So we do need to reflect a little bit and say, okay, what, what we need is how do we regenerate our societies? Mm. That's a lot about, you know, looking at qualitative growth, which is like, how do we increase our learning? How do we increase our happiness? How do we increase our quality of life? Hmm. which doesn't have to be about buying more stuff. Hmm. Okay, that's 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 helpful. Another central theme here in the book is that we need to shift our focus from trying to slow down the processes of destruction, right, or degeneration. In other words, we need to stop focusing on doing less harm, right, uh, and actually design for and accelerate regeneration and, and do more good. Do you want to speak to the importance of that in your model of thriving? Yeah, that is the essence of the difference between sustainability and thriving is, is a level of ambition. So, you, you know, you, you get to a different place if you start out aiming for something that 
is also called, for example, by the by Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston in their book, net positive. Yeah, you want something that mm. in the end has far more benefits than it has costs. And it's it's surprising that so much of what we've done in sustainability is simply about doing less of the bad stuff. Yeah. So we aim to reduce pollution, yeah. not to eliminate pollution or to create things that will actually make our society or our, our uh, environment better, but just to have a little bit less of the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and if you set out with that intention, of course, you're just going to get a little bit less pollution. Uh, it's If you take uh, agriculture, since you're a gardener, let's key in there a little yeah. bit as, a, as an example, right? So we've we've had the industrialization of agriculture. As a result, agriculture today is a carbon source. In other words, it yeah. emits more carbon than it absorbs. But if we have regenerative agriculture, it can be a carbon sink. It can absorb more carbon than it emits That's right. and be a great source of biodiversity and also be productive in terms of food. So you know, it depends what you set out to do. If you set out to just maximize one thing, the very few, if any, again, maybe cancer is the only example, few things in nature that maximize one variable. Uh -huh. uh, they, what they do is they optimize the conditions of the whole system so that, uh, you know, the whole thing can thrive. There's, a, there's another lovely quote uh, I often use by Sir David Attenborough, one of my mm. heroes, and uh, he says, in this world, a species can only thrive when everything else around it thrives too. Mm. So that's the essence of this difference of saying, how can we design something? You know, you get a very different answer if you say, how can I design this house not to be more energy efficient, but actually to produce more energy than it consumes yes. or to produce cleaner water than the water that it, it brings in or to be made out of materials that when they go back to nature will actually make nature healthier rather than toxify nature. You just get different designs and better businesses if you start out with that thriving concept in mind. I love that. That is such an important concept to get across. I'm speaking today to Dr. Wayne Visser from Norfolk in the UK, storyteller, idea monger, pracademic author of the brand new book, Thriving, The Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the Economy. You can learn more about him at waynevisser.com. I'm Justin Mogg here on, for the day, we're going to call it Thriving Now, <laughs> here on Forward Radio. Um, I, one, one little phrase jumped out of your book that I'd love for you to, to share. Um, you, exp you, you say uh, that investing in thriving is, is kind of like going to the dentist. You want, to, you want to explain that concept? <laughs> yeah, we are a bundle of contradictions, aren't we, as human <laughs> beings, right? Because we often know what's good for us, but we don't do it. We don't do and it. And <laughs> so we are caught up in, in, you know, what is immediately pleasurable or convenient. Um, so, you know, we have to sort of fight against some of our natural instincts. Yeah. And going to the dentist is just a metaphor, of course, but many of us know that that's what we should do and what we must do, and we put it off for as long as possible. <laughs> and in the same way, you know, we know that making a healthier, thriving future is something we absolutely should invest in. 
you know, getting getting all the uh, you know the climate investments uh, around renewables, for example, we know that's something we obviously should be doing. Getting to electric vehicles as quickly as possible, we know that's some, and yet you know we have these um, incentives also in, in yep. all around us that that get us to focus on the short term and immediate gratification, <laughs> and not making any sacrifices uh, now for the future. And so we just have to fight that instinct and tune into the other instinct we have, which is to say, well, we actually do care about the future and we can be quite wise yeah. if we want to be, but it takes a little bit of effort. Well, I know I'm a real weirdo because <laughs> I actually enjoy going to the dentist. I, I feel like it's kind of my spa time. I don't go to the spa, but here's a nice time for me to just in the middle of my day, just go and lie down and relax and not think about anything and have people like tend to me and care for me. And it's, you know, I guess I'm bald, so I don't get to go get a haircut, but I suppose it's kind of similar to that experience, right? Yeah. So you are a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Another concept or thing you talk about in your book is, is uh, the great reset so tell us about Klaus Schwab and his call for a great reset. Yeah, this has become a little bit of a political slogan. So if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. But <laughs> it is the idea that, you know, especially now with the pandemic that we've been mm. going through with many of the crises we face that have forced us to just take a step back, see what isn't working, uh, take some time out in some cases, uh, you know, in a time where many economies almost ground to a halt, this is a period of reflection when we have the opportunity now to kind of have a fresh start and, and just do things differently because yeah. we've been shown how possible it is to do things differently. Mm -hmm. We've suddenly discovered we can work from home. We've suddenly discovered we don't have to fly everywhere right. and drive everywhere um, we've some of us suddenly discovered that we have nature around us if we just look for it. So, um, you know, I think it's that idea that this this could be the perfect moment just to try new things um, and to you know to be a bit bold. I think that's again the the message. What we saw politically with with COVID was the ability for politicians and for businesses to do very dramatic yes. things and for us as society to to make behavior changes we would have never thought were possible and so that should give us the encouragement and and the belief that this is possible for other things as well and we know we have to make big changes in other areas relating to sustainability or thriving and so you know, let's let's just do it because we've shown that it's possible to do. Now, I, I did also say, actually, after the Great Reset uh, was in the air, I said those that expect a Great Reset, um, you know, will be disappointed, <laughs> but they won't. But they won't be wrong because whether we like it or not, things have changed. Uh -huh. You know, and the way that complex living systems work is that things ripple through the system and so you just never know all of the little changes that we've made and the, the way we think differently now what effect that's going to have in the whole system so the system is different today the global society is different 
Uh, and in, in some ways, I think we will see positive effects in the future that we couldn't have predicted. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that gets to another important concept in the book, which is about convergence. So I wonder mm. if we can talk about convergence a little bit, because uh, you say that the switch to renewable energy and to fully autonomous electric vehicles is a classic case of convergence. Well, as a cyclist, I find the concept of fully autonomous electric vehicles rather horrifying. So please convince me otherwise. Uh, and and how on earth can you think that something like lithium-ion batteries can be considered regenerative? Yes, such a crucial concept, convergence, right? Because what this means is that sometimes you get a perfect storm. So what you get are several things influencing each other that mm. are accelerators. You get mm -hmm. reinforcements. And in system science jargon, they call this positive feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when I'm presenting on this, a picture I often show, which I think illustrates it, is a picture of New York City, uh, a street in 1900, and it's all horse-drawn carts, oh, and there's yeah. a single, single motor vehicle. 1913, same street, all uh, cars, automotives, and one horse-drawn cart. So in 13 years, a whole transport system flipped in a mm -hmm. major city of the world. How is that even possible? Well, it, because, it's because of convergence, because we had a convergence between oil prices going down, mass production of cars, which brought their price down. Um, you know, you had all sorts of things just happening at the right time, infrastructure being put in, roads and so on. And so we get this in other areas happening right now in sustainability. In terms of solar wind batteries, well, the first thing is that there is a convergence between those technologies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, their, their price has dropped more than 80 or 90% just in the last 10 years. Um, so they become the most affordable source of new electricity in the world in almost every single country of the world. Wow. They can't, you know, uh, oil, gas, coal, um, and even nuclear can't compete on cost anymore. Or especially nuclear. Uh, it's so expensive. <laughs> and yet we still uh, are planning to build more. Uh, but, yeah. you know, that's politics. Um, there will come a time very soon in the next few years when solar and wind will be cheaper to install than it is to operate oil and gas and coal-fired wow. power stations. And then, of course, we'll see an even faster tip tipping point. So that's that's one type of convergence that's happening around the technology. It's being also reinforced by everything that's happening with artificial intelligence, which is linked to the autonomous driving. And autonomous driving sounds scary, but actually, I mean, I've, I was one of the early adopters of Tesla, the Model S, and we've had it for six years now. So we've got autopilot. This is semi-autonomous. All the data that's been analyzed shows that um, autonomous, semi-autonomous autopilot is already nine times safer than pure human driving. Wow. Fully autonomous, they won't release until it's a hundred times safer. Wow. And Elon Musk has uh, said that in the future, people will be sued for driving a car because it's just the most, the craziest thing you could do. Indeed. If a computer could drive it 100 times safer, <laughs> then it's actually negligent for you to drive it. So there's a safety element, but you, you point to a few other things, like what about the batteries? Now, just remember that 
battery technology, which is part of this convergence, a very important part. It makes renewables a really viable alternative mm. to oil and gas and, and other fossil fuels. Um, but it's at the innovation stage where Henry Ford's T was in the early 1900s. Okay. I mean, we're just at the early stages and there are so many competing technologies. We don't know which one will win. Um, but for now, lithium ion is, is, you know, doing the scaling. Lithium can actually be mined fairly sustainably. We've got a site in Cornwall in the UK. They mm. just make a small hole in the ground. It's nothing like fracking. They get it out. It's like a salty brine. Uh, you mm. know, it's it's can be quite sustainable. There are other metals, of course, in, in batteries that, you know, are, have their problems and we need to take care of where they're being mined and mm, yeah. whether there's enough supply. But I, I'm totally confident that innovation will take care of a lot of that together with, you know, good standards. And, um, you know, I'm just watching to see what, what comes next because like the computer revolution, you know, we will look back in 10 years' time and say, I can't believe those batteries that we used to use in, you know, 2022. You know, they only gave us, you know, 500 miles on a single charge and we had to charge for, you know, almost an hour. So, you know, it, it's moving very fast. But we must always think about the unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah. But to the question, you know, are electric vehicles really more sustainable? 100% absolutely. And so we have to go to the more sustainable options compared to fossil fuel cars and then take care of the other issues. Same with renewables. I mean, uh, you know, wind turbines, uh, we have to figure out how to recycle the blades. The, sure. the, the biggest ones had blades of 107, 108 meters. Yeah. You know, what do you do with those? Yeah. But we can figure that out. So down the road from where one of my Rolls is in Antwerp in Belgium. There's a company called Yumicor. They used to be a mining company where they had mines all around the world. Today, they're the biggest urban mining company. And one of the things, so they recycle precious metals, biggest in the world from our laptops, from our phones, but also from industrial processes. They already have a plant just waiting for all the batteries from wow. cars. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's, this makes me more hopeful about that. Good, thank you for that. We're, near, we're nearing the end of our time already. Oh, there's so much in the book to talk about, but let's just end about talking about thriving economies and business. So there's a quote in the book about the tyranny of short-termism. How do we get away from that? And how do we get away from the problems of wealth concentration, which are so horrific in our society today? And and as you touched on earlier, this model of infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Yeah. This is where I think we have to get to changing values in society. Hmm. Um one of the reasons why we are so short-term focused right now is because it was a almost an ideology that was sold to us in the 1970s uh, by neoclassical economists. And somehow they did a really great selling job and we all <laughs> bought into that, the whole shareholder capitalism model, which of course, you know, those in power are often those that are benefiting the most from it. And so they amplified that and they reinforced it through policy. So what we need now is for the social norms to change. Just what do we expect? Because we know that we, we all have um, 
you know, there is that kind of story or proverb, isn't there, about us having two wolves inside of us. And the Mm. one is sort of the good wolf and the one's the bad wolf. (laughs) So if you like, the one is the short-term greed-oriented wolf and the other one is the long-term, you know, wiser wolf. And so which one will win? Well, it depends which one you feed the most. And at the moment, we've been feeding the greed and the short-termism and incentivizing that through the markets. Um, and rewarding that whereas i think you know we can change that we can just change the rules of the markets uh take for example paul polman when he was ceo of unilever one of the biggest companies in the world one of the first things he did as ceo he says i'm not going to report quarterly anymore because oh, it yeah. just incentivizes the wrong thing now you know the shareholders that stuck with him over a 10-year journey got amazing returns but he wasn't promising them those returns every quarter. He was saying, I need to invest in the long term. And McKinsey uh, research shows that uh, uh, companies that are more long-term oriented actually have better earnings, hmm. better capitalization, more job creation, higher revenue. So we just have to change the narrative uh, and then start to change the mechanisms which either reward or punish that uh, long-term versus short-term behavior. And that's why it has to be a movement. Uh, it has to be bottom up because those in power will not uh, lead the revolution, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the bottom up is how we get away from the problem of wealth concentration, right? Yes. And there again, you know, we have to we have to be very intentional about it because yeah. it doesn't. The way our system is currently designed, we do have a trickle up economy yeah. globally so wealth trickles up it concentrates in fewer and fewer hands and that's why we need to be very conscious about uh, about stopping that happening yeah. and and making sure that we share things around better that we give more people opportunities make for a more inclusive economy get women into yes. you know the science and tech all of these things uh, you know uh, are what we need to do and um, you know it it, it's possible. I think this is what, again, back to the possible. Yeah. Right? We, we think it's inevitable, but it's not. So the, the world after the Great Depression, or let's say just before the original Great Depression of the 1930s, was a very unequal world, roughly as unequal as it is today. Uh, you know, something, don't quote me on the figures, but, you know, 70% of the world's wealth was in the hands of 1% of the population, mm. something like that, similar to what it is today. After the Great Depression and two world wars, we changed our policies and we said, hang on, we, we actually think we, we want a fairer society. We want mm-hmm. more people including, included and benefiting. And we got that wealth gap way, way down so that, you know, the top 1% only you know, got uh, 40% of the income or whatever. So it is possible if we make it intentional. Fantastic note to end on. Wayne Visser, this has been such a treat. Thank you for your very helpful book. I encourage our listeners to check it out just out this year from Fast Company Press, Thriving, the Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the Economy. You can learn more at waynevisser.com. Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time. This was great. Thanks for having me, and thanks to all of those who have been listening. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. I've got tons of ideas for how you can get engaged in thriving this week here in Louisville. So stay tuned.
When I was a child, I walked these hills, drank from the streams, and heard the whippoorwills, and I ran through the fields just as fast as I could, through rocks in the creek, from the deep green woods, climbed up on the mountain, there as fresh as could be. Then my Kentucky soul fly free, fly free, fly free Down from the Ohio to the big sandy And up in the mountain holler down to the big city Gonna let my Kentucky soul fly free Now I'm a man, I live in the big city It's a crazy life, don't bother me Cause deep down inside, I'm still a country boy You know I gotta get back to where I was born Down by the rivers, where I long to be Kentucky soul fly free, fly free, fly free down from the Ohio to the big sandy and up in the mountain island down to the big city. Don't let my Kentucky soul fly free. Get it now. We're back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, enjoying the sweet sounds of Apple Latin, and many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great music on all the local programming we have archived for you at forwardradio.org, and you can learn more about them at AppleLatin.com. Well, I hope you have your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, my friends, and I hope you've been paying attention that there is a primary election coming up on Tuesday, May 17th. If you're not sure where to vote or who to vote for, the Louisville Sustainability Council has got you covered. They reached out to all mayoral candidates and asked them to speak to their sustainability initiatives if voted as the next mayor of Louisville. You can check out their responses and flip through the Louisville Sustainability Council's election toolkit designed to show you who's running, what the mayor really does, and provide simple steps on how to choose a candidate, register, and vote. You can find it all at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. And speaking of the mayor's race, there is going to be a path forward for Louisville Mayoral Forum on Tuesday, April 26th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. at the Norton Healthcare Sports and Learning Center out at 3029 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. On Tuesday the 26th, the Louisville Urban League and Get Up Louisville will host this mayoral candidate forum. Most of the 14 candidates running will be on hand to present their ideas for how the city can be a more equitable and just place for all residents. As we prepare for our mayoral candidate forum on the 26th, we believe candidates should answer questions from the community that they hope to serve. And so they're inviting you to submit up to three questions you would like the candidates for mayor to answer. You can find the link to 
register for the mayoral forum and to submit your questions at lul.org slash event for the Louisville Urban League, lul.org slash event. Now, coming up on Wednesday, the 27th, it's a Solar Over Louisville workshop taking place online at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. Louisville Metro Government has partnered with the Louisville Sustainability Council to launch the Solar Over Louisville Solarize campaign that you've heard about here on this program, designed to give households in the greater Louisville region an opportunity to go solar together and support the city's 100% clean energy goals. The campaign will give households bulk purchasing power to obtain discounted wholesale rates for solar installation. Going solar will, of course, help you reduce your energy bills and potentially increase increase your property values. It also supports local solar jobs and helps Louisville meet the goal of using 100% clean energy community-wide by 2040. Solar Over Louisville makes investing in solar easy by connecting participants with a vetted solar installer, providing a step-by-step walkthrough of the solar installation process and helping participants access discounted rates on solar. Currently, the selected solar installer, Solar Energy Solutions, is offering a 12 to 19% discount at this workshop. You'll hear directly from the installer, learn more about the process, and have the chance to ask questions. You can learn more and register for Wednesday's 7 p.m. online Solar Over Louisville workshop at 100%LOU.com slash 2040. That's the number 100 percent spelled out lou.com slash 2040. And speaking of solar, uh, we want to alert you to avoid solar scammers. Some of my personal friends have been stuck in these situations. Solar scammers are out in full force in Kentucky, and the Mountain Association has put together a guide for how to avoid getting scammed. As solar becomes more affordable, companies with sale reps that have little solar experience are popping up everywhere to get a piece of the pie. Their advertising campaigns are pushing too good to be true solar deals over all social media. Many out-of-state solar lead companies are using aggressive marketing with hooks like get paid to install solar on your home or want to eliminate your electric bill completely. Once they sell you a system, they've done their job to generate the lead. Many then contract with the lowest bidding local electrician who may also have little experience with solar for your job. This is leading to systems being installed in the shade where they can't actually work or overpriced systems lacking safety requirements or proper permitting or without required approval for the interconnection. The good news is that there are indeed many reputable companies right here in Kentucky and Indiana, but you need to know what questions to ask. You can learn more to avoid solar scammers at mtassociation.org. That's the Mountain Association. They do great work here in the state. Check them out at mtassociation.org and avoid those solar scammers. Now, the Louisville Grows annual Seeds and Start Sale is filled with your favorite and unique veggies, herbs, fruit trees, berry bushes, native flowers, and other gardening needs. Seeds and Starts are planted and grown with love by their greenhouse volunteers. Each of their over 100 varieties of plants are chosen for adaptability, biodiversity, beauty, and taste. Plants for any size garden or containers are available, and you can feel good about getting your locally grown, low-cost plants at Louisville Grows Seeds and Starts 
sale because all proceeds from the sales support their community garden grant program. Friends of Louisville Grows receive a 15% discount on sale days, and you can become a member now at louisvillegrows.org. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because their next in-person Seeds and Start sale is this Saturday, April 30th from 10 to 4 in person at the Louisville Grows Greenhouse located at 1639 Portland Avenue. And there'll be a last one on Saturday, May 14th, also 10 to 4 at 1639 Portland Avenue. You can view what they have available online and learn more at seedsandstarts.org. Now, also coming up this Saturday, April 30th from 10 to 2, it's the next pop-up drop-off with uh, the city accepting uh, all kinds of items for recycling and appropriate disposal. It's going to take place this Saturday the 30th, 10 to 2, at Metro Fleet Services out at 3515 Newburgh Road. There'll be free recycling of electronics up to three, uh, metal and appliances, household recyclables, prescription uh, medical medication disposal, uh, proper disposal of that. You don't want to flush it. Uh, also, they'll be collecting yard waste for composting and up to four passenger tires. And again, that's this Saturday the 30th at Metro Fleet Services, 3515 Newburgh Road from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Also want to let you know that on Sunday, May 1st at 11.30 a.m. at Gallant Fox, it's the next Bright, Bright Side Sweep and Sip. They'll be meeting again the first Sunday of the month for their brewery-hosted cleanup event at Gallant Fox, which is at 2132 Frankfurt Avenue. You can come out on Sunday at 11.30 a.m. to clean up the Clifton area and see their Bright Site located nearby. And they want to thank their May volunteer partner, GE Appliances. You're welcome to join them this Sunday, May 1st at 11.30 a.m. at Gallant Fox on Frankfurt Avenue. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Give me that sweet, sweet summer rain. Come and wash away my blue again